You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Kim Newman is the author of the Anno Dracula series, The Nightmare in Jago. His newest book is The Man from the Diogenes Club. Welcome to the program, Kim. I'm very pleased to be here. Kim, you started out as a book reviewer and a movie reviewer as your writing career. Is that correct? Um, not entirely correct. I have done all those things. I've done a lot of other things as well. I started out, it, I mean, I, I suppose I, I started out as a child. <laughs> yeah, I started, um, but I was one of those kids who, who wrote a lot of stuff growing up. I, you know, wrote you know, little one-page horror stories or, or adapted the horror films that I'd seen the night before on television into plays that we put on our drama classes and at school, stuff like that, and and wrote a lot of juvenilia. But, uh, you know, in my late teens or at university, I, wrote, I, you know, I kept writing, did more things. I wrote plays. Uh, I was in a sort of cabaret group in, in the early 80s. I wrote a lot of... I suppose fanzine stuff as well. I mean, I mean, film criticism or, or or whatever. I actually sold my first professional fiction about the same month that I sold um, my first professional non-fiction. So I've been doing the two things in tandem ever since. What was your first pr- professional fiction sale? Uh, it was a story called Dreamers, which I sold to Interzone in um, late 1982. <laughs> As a real film historian, you've taken the unusual tack of finding your most interest in uh, genre fiction films. Tell us a little bit about what it is about genre fiction films that fascinated you in the beginning and still does. I was one of those kids who liked monsters. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I think of the things that, that you know, the, the, the big influences changed my life. I was certainly seeing like Dracula on television when I was 11 probably set me on this this cause. I'm actually interested in lots lots of types of films. I wrote a book on westerns which which very rarely gets mentioned. So I do know a lot about other I mean, but then again I suppose the westerns are genre too. I am interested in genres and categories and overlaps and and uh, I sometimes I feel that as a as a critic I spend all my time putting other people's fictions into boxes that as a writer I wouldn't want to be you know slotted into. I mean in my own work I sort of try and think of things well, you know, it's never been done that way. So let's do something that's almost like this and then you know um, you know people will find it hard to know where to put it in in a bookshop yeah you know, I I've written quite a lot of books that are like that uh, where you know you don't know whether to shelve it in mystery or horror or satire or historical fiction or science fiction or crime romance whatever I mean you know books like that which are like everything um, uh, and uh, you know in, in the end I suppose the the trouble is that you know bookshop assistants just give up <laughs> Do you have much say over how your books are shelves? You have written a wide variety. No, I have no say at all about stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> um, which uh, I, I that I I know that if I had concentrated on one thing, I might be uh, richer than I am. But um, I'm not complaining about how I've done. So. <laughs> you mentioned Dracula. Was this one of the was this the original Dracula or the one of the many Hammer horror films, which I think you seem to draw some influences from? Uh, specifically, I was talking about the Bela Lugosi film, uh, but yeah, I mean, I saw all the, the Hammer films and all the Universal films, and uh, well, whatever was available in Britain in the seventies, which isn't quite as wide as spread as as now, 
But uh, yeah, I watched yeah any any kind of horror film that played on television. I watched yeah, um, and later on turned up at cinemas for uh, and yeah, I, I, that kind of material still interests me. I I always find there are interesting things to say about it. It's like every probably a couple of months now, somebody asked me to write something about yeah a film that I've seen over and over and over again. I watch it and find no, there are still things I can do with this. There are still you know, aspects that spring out fresh every time and are, are worth looking at again. But that, I suppose that's that's part of the job of being the kind of critic I am, as well as uh, you know, having the kind of mind I have. What does a film that you've seen over and over again and found new things in, and what kind of critic are you? Well, I'm, I'm whatever kind of critic that the the um, the venue that asked me to <laughs> to write is. I, which is to say, I work for quite a variety of things. I work for in Britain, Empire, which is a bit like Premier. It's kind of a very populist magazine, but also Sight and Sound, which is slightly higher toned, more academic, and I work for Shivers, which is a kind of uh, Fangoria-type fun uh, horror thing aimed at youngish folks, and for Video Watchdog, which is a more academic genre magazine. I have no problem in modulating my tone of voice, my tone of writing for all those things. It's, st- it's still me. It's still my my interest, my personality. But it's like you talk to different people in different ways. You talk to your parents in different ways you talk to your friends. And I suppose I have a notion in my mind of, of who the readers of all these magazines are, and I think of, yeah, yeah, it's just like you're having a conversation with somebody like that. So that's the kind of critic I am, as, as to, you know, films I've seen over and over again and find more of it. I mean, uh, quite often it is the, you know, classic stuff. I'm thinking of a recent example of something I've watched, uh, uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Yeah, but I, but the thing is, uh, that's obviously, you know, a timeless classic, like Citizen Kane or The Magnificent Ambersons or The Big Sleep or something. You can go back to time and time again and see something fresh. I can do the same with Dracula AD 1972. Yeah, there are things, Night of the Lepus, whatever. I, obviously, there are there is such a thing as, as, as bad film, yeah, and the, the worst crime, I suppose, is tedious cinema. Um, but... One of the things about being a film critic is, you know, you, you're given a film to go and see in a word count. And I don't see why you can't write an interesting, challenging, provocative, entertaining review of a film that you don't think anybody should bother to go and see. You have a much stricter film code. There's lots of films that you could see here that you couldn't see there. Were you able to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre when it first came out? Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a myth, I have to say, about the, the, the UK. Now, for instance, censorship is much stricter in America because in Britain, uh, particularly in, in genre, there was always the assumption that horror films were for adults. They were given what used to be an X rating or is now an 18 rating, which effectively prohibits older uh, older children, younger teenagers, from seeing pictures like that. So there was always an assumption that these films were going to be seen by grown-ups. Whereas in America, they, were, they tended to be seen by children. You know, the, the whole idea was that horror films were for kids. And so that's why quite a lot of British horror films were heavily cut in America. Uh, it was only in the 70s when you started getting a wave of horror films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was sort of not suitable for children. Um, and that was a film of a... It wasn't granted a general certificate in Britain, but it was very easy to see. Um, uh, legally, I mean, there, there, there are all kinds of complications to uh, local uh, ratings and approval bodies. In London, um, the 
Greater London Council granted it uh, an 18 certificate, and anybody can go and see it. Um, the same is true of quite a lot of things. For a while in the 80s, there was a, a sort of heavy censorship crackdown on, on movies available on video, but that's receded now. Um, I mean, the, the British Board of Film Censors, who are now the British Board of Film Classification, probably has more horror fans working for it than at, you know, any other censorship body in the world. Little known fact, one of um, Clive Barker's first books is dedicated to uh, a then-serving member of the BBFC, uh, who was like one of his best friend at school, I think. <laughs> Are there any movies that have, I guess, scarred you in a way because they were extremely frightening or just disturbing in some way? I suppose I have sought out disturbing or extreme material. I'm not particularly a gore hound in that way. I mean, I, my first sort of major critical work on, uh, was, was Nightmare Movies, this book about horror in the 70s and 80s. And that was a period of, of like extreme confrontational stuff, m much of which I like quite a lot. But I'm always one of those people in, in the... For instance, with regards to George Romero's works, I think the ideas are as interesting, or uh, you know, the main attraction, as opposed to you know, the the you know, shotgun through the head stuff, which yeah has has its certain appeal, I admit. But you know, uh, uh, that to me is the difference between like uh, you know, a proper movie and, and just splatter. And and it was a form that became decadent very quickly. And I do get impatient with, I suppose, simple nastiness. Um, Probably because it's so easy. I think gore is like the the horror equivalent of the custard pie in the face. Yeah, you can get you can get a quick laugh that way, but it doesn't last. There's no sort of there there. And I noticed in the last couple of years there has been a tendency for successful horror pictures to go a different way, to become more sort of psychologically disturbing or creepy or do weird sort of you know David Lynchian things with sound and vision as a way of upsetting people. And it may well be because after you know, the, the lawnmower massacre in Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, the, the Dead Alive in America, there wasn't that much further you can do with just gore. Um, and there are, there are the examples of things like the uh, uh, trauma films or whatever, which have nothing going for them at all except vulgarity, crudity, um, or shock value. And once that's done, you, know, you might as well go home. And I, I, there, there is also the, the, the fact that we don't do horror in the way, even though all those 70s properties are being remade, they don't quite have what made the 70s films interesting. They don't have any engagement with society. I wasn't a great admirer of, um, I don't know, Rob Zombie's work, for instance. Uh, uh, it just struck me as, yeah, all, all, all the, yeah, the stuff a kid might take away from watching uh, a 1970s film rather than a grown-up's take on it. And, those, and the, th the interesting thing to me about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Hills Have Eyes, yeah, Larry Cohen's films, Argento's films, Brian De Palma's early films, all that, that whole range of stuff, is that they were made by people who were interested in cinema, they had an attitude to, to movies, but they were also engaged with their society. They were trying to say something, you know, uh, as well as just you know, trying to have a career or uh, trying to make movies. It seems to me that most horror films today are made by people who are interested in horror films, but not in that much else, um, who don't have anything in particular to say. Um, and you end up with 
uh, yeah, House of a Thousand Corpses uh, or uh, Eli Roth's films. Uh, although Hostel almost gets round to being interesting. Not quite, but almost. There's a, there's a real straining there for a possibility that there's a theme. Uh, it doesn't quite get there, but, the, the, but yeah, it, it should be encouraged. And yeah, and I do see people are coming along and doing, you know, you know, horror that's engaged again. And I think that was what I liked about the '70s as a, as a, a period of horror, uh, and uh, and something that receded quite a bit in the 1980s and, and and disappeared almost entirely thereafter was that there was a point to it. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of pointless nastiness. You were talking about your book, Nightmare Movies. I'd like to talk to you about the first book of yours I encountered, mm-hmm. which was The Nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating combination of cyberpunk and film noir, but in a way mm-hmm. that cyberpunk had never mm-hmm. done before, mm-hmm. because before the film noir of an elements had always been sublimated mm-hmm. into the science mm-hmm. fiction setting. You used the science mm-hmm. fiction backdrop to recreate mm-hmm the film noir. Tell us a little bit about the research you did for that book, both on the science fiction side and the film noir side. Well, that was a book that actually I drafted it as a novella before it was a novel. It was one of those things that the novella didn't work. It's a short novel in the end, but uh, it's still a novel. And and I put it aside and then came back to it as I drafted this in something like 1982 and came back to it in 1989. So basically I wrote it before cyberpunk as a thing existed. I wasn't aware when I started it that this tradition was going to happen. I make no great claims to vast originality. I mean, I I can even tell you all the things that influenced me in doing it, many of which I suspect were also influencing the people who, who did write cyberpunk. I think particularly, in my case, it was Dennis Potter's series, The, the Singing Detective. And also there were things like, it, it was, um, there was a, a film a couple of years back called The 13th Floor, which was a remake of a Fassbinder TV series, which, had a, which was based on a, 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 a pulp science fiction novel by Daniel F. Gulloy. And that had a sort of feel a bit like that. It was a sort of time travel virtual reality thing. And the other thing that uh, was a specific influence on the nightmare was Gore Vidal's sequel to Myra Breckenridge, Myron, in which a character falls into uh, a 1940s film. And actually, in there, it's, just, it's a method of time travel. But in me, it's the, my version, it's the get stuck in the consensus world of film noir. Um, and... I, I don't think it's a, you know, there are many other things before and since that have done similar ideas, but uh, I'm modestly proud of my own a- achievement. As to researching the, the film noir side of it, I just watched a lot of movies and remembered. You know, I, I didn't do any specific research for it. <laughs> you know, I just cribbed uh, from uh, yeah, the, the, the stuff that was floating around in my head. Your next book was Bad Dreams. Mm-hmm which was a wonderful evocation of the McCarthy era. Tell us a little bit about that. All right. That was a book that had another complicated um, genesis. That actually started out as a movie outline. The, uh, the dedication is to, is to the Peace and Love Corporation, which was the, the name of the, um, the, the, the collective name we gave ourselves. And I'm trying to remember who was actually in it at the time because it was one of those things where there was a possibility of us writing a, a, yeah, a low-budget, trashy 
horror film for um, Richard Gordon, the producer was, um, and Norman J. Warren, the director. It didn't happen, never got anywhere near happening. But, but we went away and we developed four properties. And we was me, obviously, uh, Neil Gaiman, um, Phil Nutman, and Stefan Jaworsin. Um, presumably you know who Neil Gaiman is. Phil Nutman's actually here this weekend. He's... Um, wet work. Wet work, yeah. And he's written a bunch of short stories and stuff as well, although I think he went into comics. He's not been that active recently. Stefan, the guy you probably know least about, was the editor of a really interesting um, magazine, fanzine, which became a series of books called Shock Express. And he's also a, a musician. But anyway, we developed four ideas for horror pictures. I have to say three of them I eventually wrote up because I realized we weren't going anywhere with them. But Bad Dreams was the one I, in particular, worked on. Um, but there are, yeah, and I will fully admit it, bits and pieces of, of Neil and Stefan and Phil floating around in there because they were in the room when we outlined it. Um, but I think, actually, most of that McCarthy stuff did come up in the writing. It wasn't in the, the, the film stuff. And, and it, uh, as, as always, you change the outline when, when you write. I'm trying to remember what the others were because it's so long since I've even looked at it. There was one which was a, a short story I wrote called Mother Hen started out as this notion of, it was a multi-sforken private eye uh, occult thing. And my pseudonymous Jack Yeovil novel, Orgy of the Blood Parasites, oh. was the one that <laughs> Stefan worked on in particular. So, And Stefan and I were at university together and it's a horror story set on a university campus. Um, it was originally called Bloody Students, which I, I prefer as a title. But And there's one that we've never done anything with. I think it was Neil's. And I'm trying to remember, because it was one we never settled on a title for. I, I think It was sort of a... Um, it was an idea of doing a British slasher movie set around Guy Fawkes. And it was called Remember, Remember, from Remember, Remember, the 5th of November. Then again, I suppose, you know, V for Vendetta came out and kind of usurped Guy Fawkes as a, a subject for, a, for anything. So that's probably why it's the one that nothing has ever happened with. But anyway, the, it was some years after we'd been through this that, that I sort of turned this outline into a novel. And in fact... The original brief was sort of something like Nightmare on Elm Street. And deep down, the novel is still a girl being chased by a monster. I mean, I do all kinds of other stuff with it, maybe the, you know, smoke and mirrors, to sort of hide from you, from you the fact that that's what it is. But it is. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I like it. I have a lot of fun with it. But it's f the interesting thing of doing something like that is there are things that I wouldn't naturally have done which were part of the brief. It has the, the leading character is American, for instance, because obviously they wanted an American actress in the lead. They didn't have a specific name, but they just wanted an American name. I probably wouldn't have done that. But then again, that, that you know, when I sat and thought, of, you know, why is this American girl in London? Because we were going to film in London, so that's why. Thing about, but, but I, you know, for a, for a film, you can just accept that this girl's living there. Yeah, but for a book, I needed to know more about her backstory and how we came here. And that's why all that McCarthy stuff crept in and the stuff about um, Broadway in the, in the 1950s. And that's mainly because I'm just really interested in all that. Yeah. Um, and th that particular strand was where uh, I went off on my own. The next book that I read was Anno Dracula. Mm -hmm. I have fabulous memories of yeah. reading that in Monterey, oh, the right. British edition. Yeah. There are about six other books in there that I have to say before you get to that. But Really? I, oh, yeah. Um, let's see. What I, I, I can't 
even think of my own stuff in in right. Yeah, I wrote a big, thick uh, horror novel called Jago, which was a kind of an attempt to do um, sort of Stephen King, Salem's Lot, ghost story, Peter Straub type, yeah, big community under siege novel. But that grew out of something that I first drafted at university rather cynically, which, uh, you know, was an idea to do a book that combined all these popular things, you know, cults and psychic powers. And I, originally, it, had, it, has, it still has spies in it, but originally it had a fatal killer disease in it as well that got shunted off into Orgy of the Blood Parasites. Actually, now I come to think of it, yeah. the nightmare was originally a subplot in, in Jago. There was a whole thing about a guy waking up in, in a black and white world that I hived off out of Jago and put into the nightmare, which is why the heroines of both books are called Susan, because they were originally the same person. But Jago is one of those big, long books, and, and I freely admit it's all over the place, but I, I kind of think it's fun. Also, I wrote a whole bu bunch of books under the name Jack Yeovil uh, in their um, uh, a series of fantasy novels, starting with uh, Drakenfels, yeah, then Beasts in Velvet, um, then a bunch of short stories that ended up being in books called Genevieve Undead and Silver Nails, and then a... Um, sort of cyberpunk western action alternate history thing uh, which it was called Dark Future which isn't my title my title was Route 666 which has been used several times since and that cycle comprises of novels called Route 666 Demon Download Crocodile Tears and Comeback Tour oh and Orgy of the Blood Parasites aka Bloody Students which was a book that I had this outline lying around and I was actually quite depressed because I was working on other novels that weren't going anywhere and I thought I'll just write a book in a week and uh, then my agent will have another novel by me that he can around. and so I did that uh, which isn't to say it sold immediately it, it, it came out some years later <laughs> but uh, that uh, happened so that's a whole bunch of books there in between yeah my uh, my second and fourth <laughs> official novel <laughs> now I actually read the uh, Jago and I you reminded me I read Jago which I quite enjoyed tell us a little bit more about the uh uh, cyberpunk westerns. I really enjoyed those. I love those. My kids read those, and they're they're uh, game meme books, aren't they? Well, that's a moot point. They were licensed by a games company, but they were based on a game that the the actually got abandoned. I mean, they never did much with it. Strangely enough, for Cheryl Morgan, who's here at this convention now, lives in in San Francisco, was was one of the people who devised the game in the first place. I didn't know that. I mean, I was at school with her as well. And only years later, I found out she'd been involved in, in devising this game, which was uh, uh, it was a car chase little game. And, and they the company weren't doing anything with it, but they were licensing their franchises to books. And they, they had this division that was doing books. And basically, the editor was David Pringle, who was the editor of Interzone magazine, where I'd sold a bunch of stories. And he liked this kind of stuff. So he got enthusiastic about doing a line of, of books on this franchise, basically between me and him and a few other writers, we came up with the world. So it has very, very little to do with Games Workshop's original game. That said, they, they've wrenched it back a bit. In, I, I know they've done subsequent books that, that I'm not involved in and haven't read, and they've fiddled around with the, the books I did write. But yeah, that was a, an attempt, I suppose, to have fun. Tell us a little bit about the, the Genevieve books. Oh, um, I don't even think of them as Genevieve books, although she, the character who's... Uh, this gets complicated. The character who is the sort of spine of the Anno Dracula series 
is a version of a character who first appeared in uh, Drakenfels, which is the, the licensed um, game work, Games Workshop. What's it called? Warhammer is the name of their series. And that's a, uh, a sort of generic um, Tolkien, Michael Moorcock fantasy um, world where people would have uh, Dungeons & Dragons type adventures. Um, and I wrote a couple of books using this backdrop uh, and, and, you know, am amusing myself in various ways. I just wanted to write different types of books. I looked at what was on the market, and they also struck me as being, you know, barbarian goes on a quest, that kind of thing. And I thought I'd do stories that were different. So I did one that was, I mean, Drakenfoss is kind of a backstage musical with a murder mystery. It's sort of murder at the vanities. And the next one I did was called Beasts in Velvet, which is a sort of Dirty Harry serial killer type story, but with a medieval setting and actually it's, it's an approach that I know has been done a, a couple of times since by other writers probably made more um, you know much more of it than I did but it was just a, a way I thought of doing books that would stand out a bit from the line and be a bit interesting and I and those books have been very well received I mean I, I get a lot of feedback from uh, now people come up to me and said when I was a kid I read those books yeah which is you know age making but when I came to to write Anno Dracula, which was another idea that had been percolating for many years, I realized that I already had a character who would be good as a, you know, a viewpoint character. And so I sort of rationalized the way of using her again, although obviously she's not the same person, but it's in a sort of alternate, another alternate, alternate universe, but is, is an avatar of or an equivalent of, or, yeah, I think they're sort of cousins or something, but um, they, their middle names are slightly different. It's, it's, how, it's how I distinguish them legally, should that ever come <laughs> be a question. Um, although, in fact, I think that, that uh, the Games Workshop people are quite pleased that, that uh, um, our girl has kind of gone out and made good. In the Anno Dracula books, you write a alternate history based on fictional characters. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of genre that can fall really flat. Mm -hmm. in for None of your works do. They mm -hmm. live and breathe. Mm -hmm. Tell us how you recreate other writers' characters as your own and put the uh, characters from very different books and series mm -hmm. into a world that seems organic and of itself. Yeah, I... I'm not going to put anybody else down. I mean, and, and also, I, there are obvious precedents for I, for what I do in these books. I think I probably combine a, a whole bunch of approaches that hadn't been done before, although have been done since. Some sometimes by me, sometimes by other people. I obviously Philip Jose Farmer is a huge influence on the the, the idea of the sort of the the reality where you know Sherlock Holmes and Fu Manchu and all the other great characters from literature live in the same world, um, and Farmer got that from various other people first, but I think he, in his sort of Tarzan and Doc Savage books, he really systematized that uh, in a way that was then workable for uh, <laughs> lesser writers like me and, and Alan Moore to come along and, and uh, play with it. I mean, we, um, I, th I think we both have been uh, sort of raking over those coals. But there are other you know, things have done that. The, the whole notion of alternate fictional histories, which in a modest kind of a way I do think I probably invented. Although, again, I know that the, the for me the precedent was DC Comics imaginary stories. You know, what if Clark and Lois got married? Yeah, uh, you know, what if Batman's parents lived? That kind of stuff. And they did loads of stories like that when I was growing up in, in, in comics. And, and, and I realized now it was just a way 
that of, of getting out of the rut of how boring those characters became because they had to, you know, you know they couldn't develop. Lois and Clark couldn't get married um, because that would ruin the stories. Although I think they are married now. But um, but anyway, that the whole thing and and I it I can't. I know the the original impetus for Anna Dracula. Um, again, it was a long time before I wrote the book. Were at, at university, I did a, um, a thesis, uh, an extended essay, on turn-of-the-century apocalyptic fictions at H.G. Wells and, and the Battle of Dorking and stuff like that. And I, in a footnote to the uh, invasion narratives, all those things like the Battle of Dorking and When William Came and uh, Riddle of the Sands, all these great stories. I, I said that, and, you know, and, and Count Dracula actually comes to Britain as an invader, it says, it says in the book, but, it, but then the book goes and does something else. And years later, it occurred to me that maybe if he hadn't done something else, there'd be something interesting. Um, and that was the, the seed of that. And I remember uh, actually in the early 80s, again, sort of doing a vague outline for what this book would be. And then it took me 10 years to come around to it. I think it wasn't until I hit on First, the notion that it wasn't just Dracula, that it was all the other fictional characters, the idea that, yeah, if there were lots of vampires in the world, that they'd probably be all the other vampires from literature, you know, Varney the vampire and Carmilla and all those people. And that, that would be an interesting... And then it was the, um, the, the history thing. Then it was realizing that the, the Jack the Ripper murders made a really good spine for, for the story. And that sort of came together and, and actually was a novella before it was a novel. But uh, it was one of those things that, that was cooking a long time before it, I sat down to do it. As you took that out into a series, it's become one of the most fascinating series that's out there. You've done some wonderful things with it. The Bloody Red Baron and the title Dracula Cha 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 mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. to die for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not in America where they changed it. No, I yeah. know. <laughs> uh, I love it too. And, and, and actually, one of the reasons why, it's, uh, strangely enough, um, hasn't happened yet, but I was talking to an Italian publisher who was thinking of doing the book, and he wanted to change the title as well, even though he knew what Dracula Cha 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 meant because it's a song that was a hit in Italy in the late 50s. It was a theme tune from a not very good film which in America is called Uncle Was a Vampire with Christopher Lee and, uh, and an Italian comedian. Tempi duri peri vampieri, hard times for the vampires. And it's the, the song isn't much heard in the film, but it was a big sort of dance, you know, pop hit in Italy in, in the, the late 50s. Rod McEwen covered it in America. And in Vincenti Minnelli's movie Two Weeks in Another Town, which is a big influence on the novel, Dracula Cha Cha Cha, the song is heard briefly in, a, in a, um, a, a scene with Edward G. Robinson and a kind of uh, starlet who is who's go-go dancing to this song in the background. It's very catchy, very infectious. This Italian guy who wanted to change the title of the book could sing the whole song. But unfortunately, uh, as it were, in Britain uh, and America, nobody knew the song. Uh, so... Uh, People couldn't even pronounce it properly, strangely enough. Uh, uh, but it, it makes perfect sense if you've heard the tune. I mean, maybe I should have put, yeah, you open the book and the thing will play at you or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's a trivial little thing. But that, but I did like that. I like, I, uh, and of course, I, yeah, the Bloody Red Baron title also comes from a song. So I was kind of thinking that, yeah, that would be something I would do throughout the series, but then I didn't with subsequent ones. These novels function effectively as 
really rich satires. Yeah, I, I think of myself primarily as a satirist, which I know confuses some people. And I don't mean it, that I think of my, myself primarily as a humorist. I think of myself as a satirist in the sort of classical, you know, Swiftian sense or whatever of, yeah, showing a distorted version of the world that's meant to, yeah, point out morals or make you think or, you know, just see things in a different way. You know, the, the whole, you know, it's satire kind of like political cartoons where you exaggerate things in order to make you know, people... Desire. That, however, sounds rather pompous and po-faced for, for what these books do, and I hope that they, they aren't like that. I mean, there are, you know, I suppose there are jokes in them as well. I mean, there are, uh, uh, although I try not... I don't think they're just funny. Yeah, I think I mean, you know, some people who've not liked uh, particularly the, the Dracula cha-cha-cha um, have thought of it as just a funny book um it's the funniest of the books because the bloody red baron the one before is the grimmest of the books because it's about people dying by the millions and so dracula cha 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 gives equal time to shopping for clothes you know uh to you know food and and yeah la dolce vita i mean this is the obvious um touchstone of that particular novel two of my favorite stories in this series are your two movie stories, mm -hmm. Andy Warhol's Dracula yeah. and France and Coppola's Dracula. Yeah. Is Now, Coppola's Dracula, is this based on the documentary Hearts of Darkness? I think I had the idea before I saw Hearts of Darkness. But yeah, I, the, some, some of it is just cribbed outright from Hearts of Darkness. Eleanor Coppola wrote a book called Notes, which also, I think, informs Hearts of Darkness. And I think I'd come across that first. Although, now I come to think of it, I think my first approach to Coppola's Dracula. I, I, I mean, that exists because Steve Jones was doing a, a an anthology of vampire story, Dracula stories and wanted something from me. And I'd already written Anno Dracula. You know, it's like I'd already done this. I, I didn't really... No, I, but I, at some point, I'm, I'm not sure if I even put it down in print or if it was just me sounding off in an interview where I said it's a shame that, that Coppola's Dracula wasn't one of his good films. And then I said, you know, it should have starred Marlon Brando as Dracula and all, and, and all the basic jokes that are in the, the story I made. And then when it came to doing this story, I think the first thing I did was I sat down and just wrote the film bits, the parody of Apocalypse Now and Dracula melded together. And once that was done, then I realized that there, are, you know, there, there was a story behind that which was like, uh, Hearts of Darkness, but it also allowed me to give it. It wasn't just a joke. You know, there was more emotional depth to it, and I, I hope we, we, you know, it, it functions in other ways and trying to, uh, yeah, address who Dracula is. It's a, the the whole point of the, the that story and the the Warhol story and actually the Orson Welles story I did afterwards is the idea of sort of the afterlife of Dracula, the the what he means for our culture, and and his refraction through. Yeah, the the, the you know, filmmakers who have tackled the subject. All three of those stories are about people who did versions of Dracula, but uh, not the. I mean, Orson Welles's version of Dracula and Andy Warhol's version of Dracula aren't particularly central to our understanding of their works. I, I, and, I, and Coppola's Dracula is rather a minor Coppola film, although quite high profile. And so I just sort of saw the things in them that. Yeah, and actually in, in their whole run of, 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 you know, their careers that sort of connected with, um, with Dracula, with vampires. It may well be this is something you can just do to, for any creative artist. Andy Warhol in particular, 
the, the more I kind of bounced Andy against Dracula. They're even nearly anagrams. Yeah, more and more things came back as, uh, from reading the biographies and more and more. And, and I kept finding people who, who, who would, ex I mean, his, his nickname was Drella, which is a combination of Dracula and Cinderella. All his friends likened him to Dracula. And, as, and uh, although it's not a way I went in, in, in the story, um, my friend, the, the filmmaker, Adam Simon, said, when I told him I was writing Andy Warhol's Dracula, says, oh, it makes perfect sense. He, he hung around with blonde women who got thinner and thinner and then died. <laughs> Your new novel, Man from the Diogenes Club. Yeah. It's, not, it's almost like when I was reading the proofs, I realized it was a novel. Although, it's, it, I suppose technically it's a fix-up, isn't it? It's, it's a collection of short stories with the main character. But there's such a spread there that it becomes a novel. Um, I... I it, it, it helps that the one original piece in the, the book, um, which is actually quite lengthy, I mean, it, it's almost novella, it, it's longer than novella length in itself, is the beginning of the story. And I'd written a similarly lengthy piece, which is the end of the story. And then I realized that, you know, you, you string them together, and there are actually through lines to the pieces beyond the, the individual plots, the, the mysteries. Tell us a little bit about, this is a slightly different direction for you. It's a it doesn't feel that different a direction for me. I have done stuff like this before. I suppose it, it still grows out of my love of and interest in our pop culture history. I'm, yeah, I, I, in all my books, they're saying, yeah. I mean, one approach is just to, to, to you know, look at all the, the footnotes and the references and, and recognize the bits of music and clothes and, and other movies and stories and where all the characters come, all that kind of stuff, which, which is fun, and I admit it's there. It's there. But I, I like to think there's a, a kind of overarching approach to yeah, our shared history, our remembered history. All the, I suppose it's to, to, to do with the meanings that we take from supposedly disposable culture. And in the case of the man from the Diogenes Club stories, I was thinking of sort of 1970s pulp, really. And, and it, that was an era that had been forgotten. Everybody remembered 1940s pulp, yeah, uh, the shadow or whatever. Um, but people had forgotten uh, the Avengers or Doctor Who or uh, the stuff I grew up, you know, the, you know paperbacks, um, you know, uh, Peter Saxon was one who's a pseudonymous. He was a whole bunch of different guys wrote those books, um, and I remembered a whole bunch of other like really thin paperbacks, which, which were sort of occult mysteries, and and you know occult mystery is a really interesting field, and I thought that it, uh, that combined with what I was doing in the Anno Dracula books, it allowed me to do a sort of secret history of the 20th century, and the 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 Dracula books are the big history. They are uh, and. You know, the, my take on the Diogenes Club, which comes from Sherlock Holmes stories, um, starts in the, the Anno Dracula books, but the version in this book, The Man from the Diogenes Club, is slightly different and probably more fun, I think it was. And, uh, and also, I suppose, it was, uh, uh, it was quite appealing to, to work with big, broad, colorful strokes and a, a trivia, you know, a trivial history, you know, things that were mildly benign, although there are scary things in these stories and, and there are sort of emotional depths and there's political points and, uh, and some actually probably more direct uh, satire in the traditional sense, you know, in that, yeah, Margaret Thatcher appears in one as a sort of mad scientist-y character and there's a whole bunch of things about the, the way the world works that, uh, you know, that are, there, that are intended... Uh, to be bitingly humorous in a kind of black ma manner. Um, 
And I, yeah, but and yet of the heart, the, the, there is that, you know, I hope, uh, a feeling of, of, you know, these particular characters and their particular lives, um, which is all you've got really in fiction. You know, that, that, that is the, the spine of everything. Your work has a feeling of depth, yet yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody would like to say, well, I just write paper-thin stuff that doesn't mean anything. Even the people who do. Uh, <laughs> not that, that uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to throw labels around like that. But yeah, no, I, I work quite hard on this stuff. I know sometimes it doesn't seem that way. And I feel that there's always some kind of there's an emotional core to it. There's something in there that moves me or makes me angry or delights me that I want to deal with, as well as the stuff that is just having fun or floating ideas, you know, intellectual ideas on, or, um, you know, making connections, which is quite a lot of what I do. But I do feel that, you know, there, there's also, you know, we have to get back to, you know, the kid crying in the corner sometimes, yeah. Um, uh, and, and sometimes that my, my sentiment is blatant, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, I think um, being, being British, I'm a bit embarrassed about, you know, being open-hearted in, in, in that way, but I think that it does throb throughout the works <laughs> in, in a manner. Yet, one of the things you do to create these depths is you use the most ephemeral pop references. Yeah. And this well, is interesting. Tell, how do you do that? Why? I don't know. Well, I know why I do it, because it's just how I think. But I think what it is, is it's how everybody thinks. I mean, it, it's quite similar, um, although my work's not like it, to the way I know Quentin Tarantino writes. Yeah, all these people sitting around talking about Madonna lyrics or, yeah, Get Christy Love or whatever. Um, yeah, Silver Surfer. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. It's how most people I know talk. Yeah, we, we talk like that. But also, you know, the, the idea of finding resonance in the, the trivial, the ephemeral, the passing. I, you know, Shakespeare does it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I can think of plenty of things that really I find really affecting, particularly in music. Things like um, I don't know the Kinks, yeah, yeah, all all that kind of the the way that well, yeah, the Beatles, yeah, things that are throwaway or private become you know common culture through our shared acceptance of them through and and. Yeah, you know, music's a big part, for instance, of the, of the Diogenes Club stories. Actually, it's, uh, I got a whole chunk of the, the um, Anna Dracula thing that I've not yet finished, which is all about um, a, a Live Aid-type concert, so I want to get into that area at some point. And, yeah, I think maybe it is that we, we have, you know, I suppose it's postmodernism, isn't it? I mean, not, not that it's a label I like much, but, yeah, it is that sense that our lives are papered with all these things, with... With, with nonsense. I mean, but it's also pop art. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go to Andy Warhol uh, trivially. You know, I did, I, I, yeah, there, there was a real reason why I wanted to evoke him uh, within this, uh, you know, within my oeuvre. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think you can tell from, yeah, uh, yeah, you've obviously read more of my work than even I have. Um, yeah, you can see the things I keep going back to. Uh, and I also... I'm not a writer, obviously, because of the, of the way, you know, my career goes in the toilet from time to time, who thinks very much about marketing or my place or whatever. I just write what interests me. Um, and sometimes I find everybody else is interested, and sometimes I find nobody else is interested. Um, 
And so I am kind of, you know, trying to map out my own private space quite often. Uh, maybe, I mean, there are one or two books we haven't got to yet that, that go deeper in, into that than uh, the, the Anna Dracula books, for instance, although they're, they're, those are very personal books for me too. Um, but it is just trying to, to look at the things we hold in common, the things we share. And there are, I mean, I wouldn't want to compare myself in any way to, I say, much better writers than me, but, you know, Michael Moorcock does this. So E.L. Doctorow, uh, who somebody brought up the other day in connection with my work, yeah, you know, Ragtime, I think, was another big influence on, on the Anna Dracula books. And that is all about how what seems the passing or the trivial or um, the disposable in the lives of ordinary people or in the in in the lives of a culture can in the end come to be you know the most significant things yeah the things that we will remember it's the way it's the way we remember and recreate the past dennis potter who i mentioned earlier i i don't know if he's that you know if uh, in america you know that much about the the totality of his oeuvre but he always used to latch on to um disposable pop music in in pennies from heaven singing detective um wonderful um, one-off play called Angels Are So, Are so Few. Um, and for him, it was, it was almost like, you know, um, the cakes in Proust. You know, it was his way back, uh, his way back into his childhood, but not in a nostalgic way, but into, I suppose it was his way back into the material he wanted to write about. And okay, that's because he's a, a, a 1940s kid. I'm a 1960s, 1970s kid. So for me, the way back into uh, what I want to write about is Marvel Comics and the Avengers and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. You know, uh, that's what I grew up with, and you know, I, I maintain a relationship with them. I will go back to, to that world, their world. And I do now see that, yeah, in many ways, that there are lots of things there that, that uh, I recognize what was influencing those people. I, I'm um, in, uh, for, write, for writers of my particular generation in Britain, Michael Moorcock is an absolutely unavoidable influence and, and uh, still a greatly underrated writer. Uh, even, you know, even with all the heralds and the accolades and the prizes he's had, people still don't get, get how good he is. I think partly because Mike doesn't know how good he is. I, I think he's a much better writer than J.G. Ballard, and you'll never find anybody saying that in print. Um, but what he does in his world very often is, uh, you know, going back to things that he has experienced or that we have collectively experienced. He's actually able to write brilliantly about lives he didn't live, you know, about things he can't possibly re remember. Yeah. And I have a sort of personal connection with, with, um, with Mike's world because we, geographically I kind of overlap with him. I'm also a Londoner. There's a, there's a whole scene in, in Mother London set in a very obscure restaurant that hasn't been there for in, in, in Soho for over 40 years. But my mother was a waitress there at the time that that scene is set. Um, and so I know that there is that sort of you know, connection. My grandmother used to live in, in Elgin Crescent, which is just around the corner from where Mike lived. Um, and so when I was reading those books as a teenager, I felt a personal connection to them through that that now I feel basically, you know, through the, through the, the, the genre um, side of things, yeah, his interests are quite close. Although, we, you know, our voices are very different, I think, and, and uh, uh, he goes in, in different directions to I do in, in, in many ways. But I, I think that that's sort of 
how I glue into genre is, is through stuff like that. There's a kind of um, fussy Britishness, I suppose. It's a, uh, somewhere, a, a, another artist I feel a, a deep personal connection to is the filmmaker Michael Powell. And someone once described his world as the ye olde junk shoppy vision of, of Britain, and that's it, yeah. Um, and I look at things like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp or A Canterbury Tale or Peeping Tom, and I just see the Britain I know, yeah, the, the, the layers of our culture built up, and it's seaside postcards and yeah, all kinds of other things, and, and music, and, and uh, uh, you know, t yeah, it's why I've gone back time and time again to British popular fictions. I mean, Mike always goes back to Sexton Blake, um, who, uh, for Americans, Sexton Blake is our version of Nick Carter. For Americans who don't know who Nick Carter is, you can't get into this conversation because it's going to be too complicated. Um, but we have all this, this sort of backstory, you know, Todd Slaughter, the, the Spring Heeled Jack, uh, Jack the Ripper, you know, I mean, all, there's, there's a whole um, pile of things that come up in, in Britain. Some, I mean, I suppose the Sherlock Holmes stories, which come up over and over and over again, are also uh, are the most mainstream um, example of that. But there's a lot of other stuff there. And, and uh, uh, you know, British TV shows like Doctor Who and The Avengers and The Prisoner, uh, which, which traveled, and other things that didn't that are probably equally important to, to all of us uh, um, I'm rambling on a bit about just stuff I <laughs> yeah I, I read and watched when I was growing up but I it, trust me yeah I am still feeding on of, of this um, you cross between horror science fiction westerns you write mm -hmm. in a lot of genres yeah. which means you move between different communities yeah I saw you at Worldcon mm -hmm. science fiction mm -hmm. here we are at world yeah. horror <laughs> Tell I've, never us been, I've never been asked to a Western convention. I would go. <laughs> I actually haven't written much that's proper Western. I, 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 w I sort of wrote myself into a bit of a corner in the first Anno Dracula book in saying that the, our heroine Genevieve had been out West just before. But that was before anything interesting was really happening. So I'm not quite sure if I can go and b do that story. But I do occasionally think, Ooh, wouldn't, it, you know, wouldn't it be good to do yeah, Billy the Kid as a vampire? It's something that's floated in... in um, in Anno Dracula. And the other thing, I mean, I, I, I'll explain this because I, I quite often do spade work in books for later. The reason Edgar Allan Poe is still alive in The Bloody Red Baron and why I wanted to keep him around, even though it doesn't really fit in with the, the timeline of the, of the series, is because Pat Garrett's sidekick was a man called Poe. And I did occasionally think that that's what the story I would do would be Edgar Allan Poe as Pat Garrett's sidekick tracking down Billy the Kid. Um, and there's, there's also another odd historical bit is, is that somebody once tried to kill Billy the Kid by grinding up coins in a shotgun. Um, and that, that struck me as, you know, you, it's a way of like using silver bullets. Yeah. Um, the story is that he took the gun away from him, shot the guy and said, keep the change, Bob. Uh, and so that's sort of there as a possible. So I'd like to go. Anyway, the, your communities thing, yeah, I do. It's one of the reasons, I suspect, why I'm not an enormously successful wealthy writer who, yeah, um, again, as I was saying, it is to do with where they put your books in the bookshop. And if I do something different every time, it sometimes means that I have to start all over again every time. I have felt uh, welcomed by all these communities, but I do feel sometimes that I'm just a guest. I, if I look at, at what I have done, probably there are a scattering of short stories that are purely science fiction or purely horror. 
but not that many. Most of what I've done has been a bit of both or a bit of something or, yeah, um, it's horror but it's funny or it's horror but it's a mystery. Yeah. I, I go back and back and back quite often to detective stories. Um, I, uh, when I was working for the theatre, I wrote musicals. You know, I'd love to go and do that again. <laughs> you, and, you and John Woo. Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, Maybe you can write a musical for John Woo. <laughs> I, I, I'd go see it in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I, I hate, you know, I've written porn as well. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll do whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm never asked to those conventions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants me to be guest of honor at yeah, the AVN Awards or whatever, I'd be up for it. I'd do it. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I haven't actually had much involvement in an organized sense with mystery writers, although the ones I've met, I've got on very well with. I'm, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sort of mates with someone. But uh, there's a sort of organized, rather mature, elderly, distinguished mystery writer community, which... Yeah, you know, um, I think they, they see people like me as sort of upstarts, you know, I mean, tolerable upstarts sometimes. Um, but that's a, a, a nut I haven't quite cracked, even though what I, a lot of what I do is mystery. Well, you need to hang out with uh, Charlie Houston and mm. some of the younger American writers yeah. who I think are probably mm. quite influenced by you. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, you say you're working on a new Anno Dracula book? Uh, well, you've read chunks of it. I mean, uh, was it Coppola's Dracula? Um, Andy Warhol's Dracula, this thing, The Other Side of Midnight, which is basically Orson Welles' Dracula. Um, there's a short story called Castle in the Desert. Um, there's another short story called Who Dares Wins, and a story called You Are the Wind with it Beneath My Wings. They're all part of a long work in progress, which is called overall called Johnny Alucard. I've drafted a whole chunk which takes this book way over length, which is one of the reasons why it's not finished. Um, called A Concert for Transylvania. I may polish that, and because somebody's asked me for another novel, novella, I may polish that up and bring that out in the next year or so. But I, I, it's one of those things I'm worried about. I see no actual end in sight, and I don't want it to be a 300,000-word book, which is episodic, and naturally it is, because it is a collection of, of, yeah, sort of snapshots from one character's life um, throughout 30 or 40 years. Um, and there's a thematic thread, but the narrative thread is very, very attenuated. So that may be something I have to deal with um, uh, later. But uh, the other book, the, other, the first three books in the series, uh, you probably noticed, their plots take place over a very short time span. They're all subtitled things like Anno Dracula 1918. Um, this you know, would be Anno Dracula, uh, I think it's 1943 to, at the moment, 1992. Um, and it'll probably end up being 2030 or whenever I finish it. And, and uh, I, I mean, one of the other problems with, with, with this book is that my original end point was um, just after the fall of communism, was just after Ceausescu's down, downfall. And my idea was that that would involve basically Dracula being reborn in the world and, and returning to his homeland and taking up power in the way that you know, after uh, you know, the great triumph over the evil empire, everything fell and the most appalling, terrible people came to power throughout the former Soviet Union. And, and this, you know, he had ghastly things like um, 
American lunatic fundamentalist cults going up and setting in Moscow. Uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, the, uh, and, you know, the appalling rise of, you know, the Russian mafia and all this sort of stuff. And I thought that was a good, yeah, yeah metaphorical end for, for Dracula. I found that there's a great, uh, and it's actually in the, the very first, um, I think as yet unpublished chunk that I wrote for this thing. There's a, a quote I found which was to do with the invasion of Sicily in World War II, where the American forces had found uh, mafia guys uh, who you know, had a sort of underground on Sicily because they, they'd been smugglers or whatever. But they're all people who'd gone to America. And so they were all offered like pardons to be you know, basically native guides. And what what the after the invasion of, of Italy, basically these guys were left in charge, and so these people were liberated from fascism and delivered back into the hands of gangsters. And I thought that's a good image of of of, of, of the downfall of communism. And I actually, the, my starting point for Johnny Alucard is the end of World War Two and Dracula being brought back to Romania by the Allies, and the idea of all these old peasants looking at. The, you know, the count getting back into his castle and sort of turning to Eisenhower and said, you bastards, you brought him back. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's sort of where my original thought of how this book was going to end. But of course, since then, there's been a whole new war on terror and a whole new area of things to worry about and things that, that will probably have to be taken into account. Um, and I'm not quite sure what my handle is on, on that yet in, uh, in this context. Um, and so I think that I will have to um, think a bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and it's a work in progress. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, I'm not in any particular hurry to finish it. Um, I am very much aware of the peril of going back to the well too often, um, particularly, oddly enough, in vampire novels. I don't know why, but yeah, we, we can all name people who wrote one brilliant vampire novel and then a bunch of sequels and then a bunch more sequels. And then you start wondering what you liked about the first one. You know? um, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to write a bunch of books that are all the same. I, I, I fully understand why some people would want to do that. Uh, but I didn't. And I, I know, for instance, when, when I... Um, at various times have sold the movie rights to Anna Dracula. They always want sequel rights, but they don't particularly want my sequels. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of, what their idea of a sequel to Anna Dracula is, is more Victorian London, um, more, yeah, yeah, more of what Anna Dracula is. And the fact is, I think, well, Anna Dracula does that. Let's go and do something else. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there are whole other settings or other times that, that I want to get to grips with. We've been speaking with Kim Newman. His new novel is The Man from the Diogenes Club. Thanks for speaking with us, Kim. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope I've not rambled on too much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.